Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. Happy New Year! Man, I am so excited for what is to come for us as a congregation, in your families, in your places of work. I am so excited for the blessings of God to be on you, in you, and around you. For you to be at your very best this year because of what God is going to do. But I am also so very concerned. I'm very concerned because while God yearns for the blessings of his desires to be on you, for John 10.10 to be fulfilled in you, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. I also know what God's word says when his people are unhealthy, when they are sick, when they are exhausted and full of everything that Satan would want for you. The blessings of God are squandered. And it isn't because God is withholding anything from you. No, 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 no. It is because God's people don't understand how to live into his blessings in their life. And they misuse, and I say again, they squander them. And I'll tell you, and I'll look at you, and I'll tell it to your face. I'll tell you in the camera. I think you're unhealthy. And I don't think you're at your best. Before you get offended at me, I want to tell you about my kids. <laughs> Cut that one real quick. <laughs> Petra, my almost four-year-old right here, I love her. I love her so much. But the moment she sees her brother that's holding something that she wants, she'll go run up and just grab it from him. There's no asking because she wants to copy and imitate whatever her brother has. Vice versa. John Philip, the moment he sees Petra has something that he wants, there's no, oh, sister, would you, would you, would you please let me? I, I, I sure enjoy to use that just, just for a little bit, and I'll give it right back to you. <laughs> and then WWF wrestling, <laughs> smack down, crying in tears, and then they find us. I hate that. But you see, copying and imitating isn't just child's play. It's a trillion-dollar industry. You know where I'm going here? Advertisers are paid trillions of dollars to make trillions of dollars for companies that want you to imitate, to copy the tastes, the experiences, the feeling, the clothes, everything of the rich and famous, the intellectual, the beautiful, the influencer, and even your neighbor. And before you start looking at me and you start saying, ooh, pastor, you don't know my life. 
You don't know who I am. You don't know that I'm unhealthy. I, I listen, I don't even have to know your name, friend. Because the statistics tell me everything. You're not at your best. New York Times in an article entitled The Great Resignation says that people have started leaving their places of work after decades being there and at the height of their salaries simply because they're exhausted and tired and don't want to put up with things anymore. Well, maybe you don't resign. Maybe you do what Bloomberg magazine says. People are now just quiet quitting. They go to work and they're half-hearted there. They play video games. They talk with their friends and family the whole time. They watch inappropriate videos. They're simply not giving their all anymore. Okay, pastor, now you're being a little bit melodramatic. How about this? How about the fact that Business Insider magazine says that two-thirds of our society is sleep-deprived? 90% of young adults watch their phone every single night, and they'll fall asleep with it. 95% of all of us will scroll on our phone before bedtime. What's the problem with this? It lowers the beautiful chemical that God had ordained from the beginning of time, melatonin. So you might fall asleep, and instead you're exhausted. Why is that a big deal? Neuroscientists tell us when we are exhausted and unhealthy, we are more easily vulnerable and influenced. So whatever the society is selling you, whatever the culture is having on sale, you and I buy without even thinking about it. They make their money, they get their yearly end bonuses, and what do you get? In debt, divorced, overweight, and in trouble. But pastor, come on. Come on. You're so over the top right now. I'm going to go even further. <laughs> American Psychological Society says in other various studies, one out of five American children and adults suffered a mental health crisis in the last two years. Over a billion people in the world today are struggling with a mental health issue. One out of three adults and children in America are struggling with severe anxiety. Well, the last two years in this funny study, I found this so interesting. Those who are over the age of 50, University of Michigan conducted this, those over the age of 50 didn't find themselves really having that much more stress the last two years, but you know who did? 50% of parents said they found an extreme increase in stress, anxiety, and mental health struggle. Hey, I'll tell you, I know. My kids have been at home the last two weeks with me. All day, every day, three of them. And my wife going to work. And here, I'm taking vacation to be with them. Man, it's hard. I can't wait for the daycare to open on Tuesday. Some of our daycare teachers are here. I'll see you. I'll see you, Miss Marion. Thank you so much for coming today. And the thing is, it's so tragic because we are medicating then on our own in this state of exhaustion and unhealthiness. How are we medicating ourselves? More pornography, more drugs, more alcohol, more binge eating, more this, more that, more this, finding an antidote to our illness on our own. You realize that parents in the last two years, parents saw such a heavy increase 
in their weight, you wouldn't believe it. 55% of men, dads, found themselves having gained on average 45 pounds. 47% of moms saw themselves on average gaining 37 pounds. We are killing ourselves, self-medicating at a rate that's unheard of. Two out of every five young adults has or is currently using drugs right now. One out of six of every adult and child over the age of 12 is using drugs or has used them in this last year. We are killing ourselves. Second leading cause of death among young adults, suicide. Are we unhealthy? Am I wrong to look at you and say, I don't think you're living at your best? Am I wrong to think as a society we are not at our peak, not where God would yearn for us to be? Am I wrong? Friends, I feel as though I am so convicted by this statement, I, I have to read it to you. Korean-born German philosopher, that's a tongue twister, Korean-born German philosopher, Byung-Chul Han, at the end of his book, The Burnout Society, he gives this poignant reading of Western society. He says, they are too alive to die and too dead to live. The Apostle Paul had something to say about a culture and a people copying and imitating. Copying a world that is consumed with you and I becoming more exhausted, more financially in debt, becoming more relationally divided, becoming more emotionally torn apart. He has something to say. But I first want to ask you a question. Are you ready for a new way of life? It's not a rhetorical question. Are you ready for a new way of life? If you're watching right now, scream at the TV, I'm ready for a new way of life. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Good. Good. Thank you. You see, if you want a new way of life, then I encourage you to imitate something that isn't earthly. Paul, in his first prison letter to a church plant, his very first one there in Philippi, where Lydia became a first Christian there in Europe, he writes while enchained, and he writes to a beautiful city, actually. But it was also a unique one because it was a military colony of Rome. You see, Rome didn't want its veterans in the capital city causing problems, getting drunk, and having just weird experiences. So they sent them to Philippi. There in the city that was also a gold mining region, also a port city that saw trade and a bunch of wealth and just beauty there. Paul writes to the Philippians and he tells them, thank you. Thank you for your generosity in supporting me while I'm in house arrest, in prison here in Rome. But he also does something that we don't have in the English language. He speaks in the imperative. The imperative is, is, is like you get a text message from a friend and it's in all capital letters and a bunch of exclamation marks in the end. You're like, whoa, calm down. And that's what Paul does here at the end. The imperative is not just a suggestion, it's a command. And so what does he command them? Look at this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Philippians 3, verse 17. Pull out your Bible with me. Join together in following my example. Ooh. 
Brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. And people might wonder, why should I follow you, Paul? That's a pretty arrogant statement to make. I see the news. I know the pastors that have moral failures, cheat the church, politicians that rob us out of this end and that end, hedge funds that keep making more money by bankrupting others. I understand leaders who lead us all astray, and now you're saying, follow you? Have you ever heard of 1 Corinthians 11? And why to follow Paul? He says there, follow me, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul had a conversion. Paul was one who lived a horrible life, a murder, a slander, a guy with a loose tongue who killed people for goodness sakes. And Jesus found him and saved him and transformed him. God isn't just interested. Listen to this. He's not just interested and you trusting him, he's interested in transforming you. Do you want a new way of life? But this next section, this next section, I could cry for you. This next verse, I could cry for you, but I can't because I'm exhausted from taking care of the kids. <laughs> But listen to this. No, seriously. Verse 18. For I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is admonishing the Philippians, please, please stop, stop imitating them. Stop imitating the earth. Stop imitating them. You think it's going to bring you some kind of benefit? The Philippians were like, bro, I have way better access, way better experiences focusing on this earth and showing my citizenship card to this place when I go into the club. When I go into this experience, go to this place, go there. I get way better treatment, buddy. And you know what? I agree. I agree. You get much better treatment. You get a much better experience here on earth in the short term. In the momentary. You ever sin and literally within a second of doing that thing which you know doesn't bring any hope and goodness and glory and joy, you feel like awful. Because that's what sin does in your life. It entices you. First John, you are not drawn into sin by Christ but by your own inner desire. And when you do that thing, shame, guilt, and remorse end up being your friend. You see, some Christians forget while they live here on this earth, heaven is still the goal. Salvation is still the prize for us. 
But when we draw others down that same portal of death, we too become enemies of the cross. Now, listen, it isn't that the things of this earth are not a blessing. Some of you might come up to me later and tap me on the shoulder. Have you read the, the work of Solomon? He says, all's vanity and so eat, drink, and be merry. So I'm going to follow his advice. And I'll tell you, please, please do it. Please enjoy everything that God has created. The, smell the flowers. Enjoy the beauty. Love sex that you can have. Enjoy what you want in this life. Enjoy it. God made it for you. You're welcome. But it cannot become the supreme hope and satisfaction of your life. Some of you were not convicted when I said you want a, a new life because you have been lulled to sleep by the joys and pleasures of this life. Paul tells them how to imitate him. How? How do I imitate you? How do I seem to walk in this new way of life? How do I do that then? Go with me now to the next chapter, Philippians 4. And here Paul gives them counsel on how to live in this new way. Listen to this in verse 4. First he tells them in the first four, three verses, listen, stop the quarreling. Two women were going at it. And he says, stop it. Help them figure this out. There's no business for that. Instead, follow this, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all because the Lord is near. Verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Three real important realities emerge, three values, three ways of living God wants for us from here. First, Paul brings up the point, hey, rejoice. Have joy. He's not saying a happy feeling. He says joy. Joy is very different. It's a mental attitude, a stance towards life. Joy is not about the circumstances because it doesn't matter what your circumstances are, you can still have joy. If your happiness will be there, I don't know. But Paul in first, in, in first chapter of Philippians says, listen, in chains or in freedom, in life or in death, with much or little, I am joyous in Christ. I don't know if you can say that. I don't know if I can say that all the time, but I want that. Then he tells them, be gentle. Some of your Bibles use the word reasonable. Really, the word gentle is a better translation here. And if you kind of break it down in the Greek and look at other verses it's used, it's kind of like, hey, be chill. Be relaxed. Some of you are really wound up tightly. You snap at people instantly. Some of you are married to that person. It might be your kid, coworker, neighbor down the street. He says, be chill, be relaxed, take it easy, don't be quarrelsome, don't be lacking humility. But it's interesting. As one Bible commentator puts it in the expositor's Bible commentary, he says it like this. In the church, seek gentleness which puts up with other people's faults and when provoked will not seek revenge. It is the spirit 
that is open, conciliatory, and trusting of one's neighbor. And it is the opposite of being contentious and self-seeking. Wow. Paul also tells them not to do something. He says, do not be anxious. Brother, did you, read, did you forget the statistic? A third of us are dealing with serious anxiety. And you tell me now, don't be anxious? In the Greek, though, it's a very different word. You break it down, it literally means metamnao. Do not be ripped apart. Do not be ripped apart. Wow, that's a totally different thinking now. Because Paul is not telling them to be indifferent about their issues, indifferent about their struggles and concerns, the lack they have in certain things. No. But he is telling them not to be unhinged, inconsolable, and to be provoked at such a high level that you're literally causing self-induced mental harassment. Paul wants them instead of living an anxious life to take these anxieties to God. I love how one commentator on this, Peter O'Brien, in his practical commentary in Philippians says this. He says, they are to present their request to God, not because God is unaware of their needs and needs to be informed. No, but because it is a way to acknowledge their total dependence on God. When requests are accompanied with thanksgiving, they will be prepared to, quote, surrender themselves to his will, whatever the circumstance. Wow. When you and I look to God and say, Lord, I, you know everything I need. I don't need to even talk to you. Sometimes people tell me, Pastor, what is the point of prayer? Why even pray? He knows everything I need. Because you need to tell him and the world you actually need someone else than you. A lot of us are self-made people, very proud and arrogant. I don't need anyone's help. I don't need counseling. I don't need a pastor. I don't need a sermon. I don't need a self-help book. You think I made it this far by doing those things? Pfft. Yeah. I also know the statistics that I read to you in the beginning. You're not well. And you need the Lord. But the text also points out a time factor. You read verse 6 again. It says there that the Lord is near. Because the Lord is near, you need to stop the foolishness. Stop the bitterness. Stop being easily angered. Stop walking in a violent spirit. Stop walking in a way that you're causing so much negativity in your community, causing harm to people. Stop it. Why? Jesus is on his way. Jesus is on his way. The text says he's near. Come on. You're dead. Or I'm too much. Friends, are you hearing this? We got to walk in a new way of light because Jesus is on the way. He's knocking at the door. Who's coming over? Paul then goes on. Hey, after you've lived in this joy, this gentleness, and you've produced this life of prayer that walks before God with anxieties, then what? Listen to this. Verse 7. And the peace of God which transcends all understandings will guard your hearts, your minds in Christ Jesus. 
Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, right, pure, lovely, and admirable, anything excellent or praiseworthy, think about this. Whatever you have learned, received, heard, and seen in me, put it into practice. And the peace of God will be with you. The peace of God. Oh, friends, I need the peace of God in my life. Cry out to Jesus in your time of need. Put your full surrender in him, and he will give you his joy that is above circumstances. He will pour out his gentleness, and he will be your calming presence. But pastor, how? How can I do that? For decades, I've been living with a loose tongue, telling people the truth about what I think about them, telling people the truth about situations. And I know it harms people, and they don't always like being around me, but pastor, how can I change from being the person I am? Have you ever read the prophet Zechariah 4.16? Not by might, not by power, but by the strength of the Lord. And his spirit, you can live into these ways. And why is this so important, that we're people of peace in the world? Why? I'm reminded. I'm reminded of a story. When I was a missionary for a couple weeks in the country of Belize, there with my friends, I was 18 years old. We had finished our work, and every afternoon I'd see this beautiful truck just roll in right where we were staying in front of the water there by the park, the beautiful truck. I'm like, it's a really nice truck in a very poor community. And this gentleman would lower his window and he'd smile big and he'd hand out little baggies and people would smile back and give him a handshake with little cash. I put two and two together. I knew who he was. And that evening I happened to go to the gazebo that was near the water there where we were staying and, and my friend and I all of a sudden in the gazebo smelled smoke. And we're like, wait a second. We kind of turn around and all of a sudden we see this dark red light in the middle of the night. Someone was smoking right there. Sure enough, it was our community-friendly drug dealer, guy with the truck. He was just sitting there. And we started talking. You know me. I don't know a stranger. We had a good conversation. We enjoyed our time, laughed a little bit and talked. And I then looked at him and I said, hey, I've got something for you. I run to my, my room, and you see, I, I was a literature evangelist there in high school. I did LE for the, the year, and I had two books that God just put in my heart to bring. Great Controversy and Peace Above the Storm. This adaptated title of The Steps to Christ. And I gave him those two books, and I said, brother, I don't know why, but I believe the Lord wants you to have these. And he looked at me genuinely thankful. Because usually he was the one selling and giving. I didn't buy anything from him. I would have been sent home right away. <laughs> and I then invited him to the evangelistic series we we're going to start that next evening. And I, and I actually prayed for him with my friend there, and we went. Guess who I saw a couple days later? Our friend. And I asked him how he enjoyed the books. He said, you would not believe it. I brought my sister to those meetings, and when she got in the truck, she looked at the book there, the top one, Peace Above the Storm. And she said, I need this, brother. She's halfway through the book. 
She's been reading it. And I said, praise God. People are looking for peace. People are looking for people of peace. And friend, my issue with us as believers is this. Instead of being people of peace, we are anxious presence. We are a loud, crying negativity. I don't know how many of you were with one another at Christmas time. Did you have conversations about the end of the world and the collapse of everything and how the world's going to hell in a handbasket? Instead of doing the words of encouragement and blessing people and speaking words of hope and gentleness, we became anxious presence to others. I'm not saying we don't need to be a cry in the wilderness because that's what the prophet Elijah did. But we also need to give people the antidote that they're seeking for their illness. And it isn't founded in causing more fear in their life. It's founded in giving them a hope founded in Jesus. Do you need a new way to live? Yes, because eternity is at stake for people. Do you understand that how we live in front of others has consequences? Let me give you a negative example. You know the story of Gehazi, the servant of Elisha in 2 Kings 5? Here, this wealthy military official comes before the Elisha, the one who could heal him, annoyed at his kind of recipe for healing. He ends up doing it, and sure enough, he was healed. And this military official, so taken aback, grateful, says, can I give you money? Can I give you new clothes? And Elisha says, no, thank you. You have nothing I need. But his servant, impressed and influenced by the way the man looked, by what he had, once Elisha started walking down the road, Gehazi, it says, started running after Naaman. And he might have had a conversation like this, oh, brother, <clears throat> we have changed our minds. You know, your offering would be a great benefit to our ministry. A ministry of his own life and family. Sadly, when he returns, he lies to Elijah and withholds that he took anything. The Bible says that he was struck with leprosy. Not only him, but his family and generations to come. He yearned after what the world was offering Influenced by the wrong person. Do you understand the dichotomy here? He was influenced by the sick instead of being blessed by the healthy. Oh, Jesus. But the beautiful thing is, though, friends, when we live into God's blessing the way he yearns for us, we can be such a joy and delight for people. If you've ever read Adventist Home, there Ellen White talks about this. She says that a family well-ordered and organized for the kingdom is a better benefit and blessing to Christianity than any sermon ever preached, any teaching ever told, any book ever written. Because the gospel must be practical to people. It, might, it must actually show that what you believe can really make a difference. Why is this so important? Because people's lives are at stake. And it's time for us to be the influence and not the influenced. It's time for us to share with others a hope founded in Christ. Now, I know some of you are living that out in your lives. I don't want to be so hard on you today. 
Some of you are like, whoo, this is a doozy. But I need you to wake up to the reality. You see, I love how the motivational speaker, Roan, says it, that we are the average of the five people we spend the most time with. Said another way by David McCullough in his study from Harvard, he says that those who we are habitually associated with have such an influence over 95% of our success and our failure. Who you are a 